It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, October 1st, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. It is the end of the government's fiscal year and the Border Patrol is looking at another record for migrant apprehensions as babies are abandoned and people drown in the Rio Grande River. One former Homeland Security official says cartels have more power in the U.S. than ever before. This has been the biggest Trojan horse operation uh, in history coming into our country. So not only are we going to have to fight this battle internationally, but now we're also going to have to, because of this administration, fight it on the streets of our country. I'm Ryan Schmelz. Senator Bob Menendez remains defiant with a major legal battle ahead of him after being indicted. And Republicans hold their first impeachment inquiry into President Biden. It looks very nice. It looks very damning if they can prove it. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. This week, Chief Patrol Agent Gloria Chavez posted a picture of a two-month-old abandoned found by Rio Grande City border agents at the border. As multiple videos showed migrants wading through the Rio Grande River, ripping their clothing as they crawled through concertina wire. The border was in focus at this week's second presidential Republican debate. Here was former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Mexico's not being a good partner if we lost 75,000 Americans last year. Mexico's not being a good partner if they're letting the cartels get away with what they're getting away with. What we will do is we will make sure that we send in our special operations and we will take out the cartels, we'll take out their operations. Vivek Ramaswamy said he would send the military to the border. One week before the end of the fiscal year, border sources told Fox News they'd surpass the number of migrant encounters from last year with more than 2,388,000 people. That does not include hundreds of thousands of gotaways. And guess what? Just the other day in Alabama, a gentleman told me, if you will come back here with me in this neighborhood right behind you, you will see migrants who are here illegally and they will tell you about the drug cartels coming around every other week to collect. Guys, that's not the American dream. That's an American nightmare. Alabama Republican Senator Katie Britt joined other GOP senators before the debate to highlight the human trafficking, smuggling, deaths in the river, assaults on women. The border got another boost from the one and only Elon Musk. So here we are uh, at Eagle Pass uh, and we're going to be uh, meeting with, uh, uh, with the sort of major, the major officials. Uh, Uh, and uh, law enforcement are responsible for the water. That happened Thursday, the same day President Biden was in Arizona visiting the McCain Institute. He did not visit the border. Throughout the years now, his administration has said they're doing a lot. It's Republicans who failed on the border. As you know, the president has done everything that he can uh, to work on an issue uh, at uh, at the border that has existed for decades, to work to improve the immigration uh, system. Uh, He's done that alone uh, without the help of Republicans. That was White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre earlier this month. Also earlier this month, a Fox News poll echoed other polls in finding the president only has a 32 percent approval rating when it comes to immigration matters, the second lowest approval rating of his after inflation. I think there was actually a pause by the traffickers to understand 
the changes that were going to come to the border. Charles Marino is a former senior law enforcement advisor at the Department of Homeland Security. What was going to happen from the administration and what wasn't going to happen. Uh, Because remember, after Title 42 was taken down, we also saw the administration to decrease the numbers in between the ports of entry unilaterally expand the legal ways that these migrants would be able to enter the U.S. For example, they expanded unilaterally again uh, asylum, where they now include claims of trying to escape poverty. Well, poverty is not one of the criteria of asylum. The administration just went off and did this. So what happened was, in conjunction with the uh, expansion of the CBP-1 app, is that all of the migrants making the journey to the U.S. now saw that all they needed to do was make contact with CBP at the ports of entry, claim asylum, and that they would be processed into the United States. So the cartels are very elaborate organizations. Sometimes they're going to take a pause when policies are stood up or taken down, Hmm. like we're speaking about Title 42, reassess the situation, Uh, Because, again, they're in the business of making money. So why make their mission harder when they can just traffic people over the border to a port of entry and hand them off to make their way into the country? Charles, that's so interesting because we heard, okay, Title 42 is ending. This was the COVID era policy that said, if you know, if you come, we're going to turn you away immediately for health, public health reasons. And they said, we're going back to Title 8, right? This was the the longstanding policy. And they said that this would result in even faster removal proceedings. So if, if Title 42 meant we're turning you away, you can't even enter. Title eight meant, oh, we'll process you, but then it's going to be a revolving door. You're going right back. That didn't happen, right? Because once you got into the revolving door and you said, well, I'm here to claim asylum, then it became a catch and release situation, right? And all these people came in. Well, that's right. And if we look at all of the programs that were in place when the administration came into office, things like Remain in Mexico, Title 42, and Title 8 is the foundation of our border security and immigration laws in the United States. This is what CBP and ICE have their statutory authorities to actually enforce the law under. None of these three things that I just mentioned were ever enforced consistently by the Biden administration. Mm. Even during the height of the pandemic, for example, we know these are facts that migrants were being allowed into the country illegally and not even undergoing COVID testing, right? right. We know that Title 42 was only being enforced maybe about 40% of the time, according to the statistics I have. Remain in Mexico. All of these things were immediately challenged in court by the Biden administration to stand them down as soon as they could, which basically tells all of us that they never had the intention of enforcing it consistently to begin with. And to walk away from Title VIII, look, we see that in the Department of Homeland Security budget, for example, where most of the money is being spent on processing. As a matter of fact, in the last omnibus, there is specifically language in there that states the money in the budget cannot be used by CBP to enforce the law. It must be used by enforcement. The budget tells the story, Jessica, of what the priorities of the administration are. The president has a statement that I agree with. Don't tell me what you value, show me your budget, and I'll tell you what you value. He's right, always follow the money. They are Mm. spending their funds on processing as many migrants as they can, 
and they are either ignoring things like Title VIII or they are trying to undercut the legal pathways into the United States, like asylum, parole, and refugee status. Charles, tell me on, that's so interesting. Tell, I want to follow up on that. Tell me on, on that front, you know, the Biden administration, Corinne Jean-Pierre, they get up and they say, this is the fault of Republicans for not passing comprehensive immigration reform, the kind of reform that the president put forth when he, you know, came into office. And then they remind that, well, we put forth you know, the idea of asylum seekers needing to apply for asylum in another country before they apply here, right? That that was something that the Trump administration right. did. And, That's right. And then you, you flash back even more to your point about like Remain in Mexico. There was still legal wrangling going on with Remain in Mexico when the president took office. I wonder between and among all of these different policies, has the Biden administration actually put forth any policy that you know, other than, so they end Title 42 and they go back to Title 8 and they, and they do this attempt at, okay, you have to apply for asylum in a third country, but a judge shot that down. So where, where are we policy-wise here? Well, I would say we have not seen a comprehensive strategy from this administration. You know, I'm an adjunct professor at the University of South Carolina. I teach national security strategy. I have yet to see a comprehensive national security strategy with respect to the border from this administration. A six-point plan that the Secretary of Homeland Security showed to Congress that focuses on processing is not a strategy. It's a six-point plan. So we're seeing an absence of policies. We know that when Remain in Mexico was stood down, Title 42, there were no plans or policies in place to replace any of that. As far as the comprehensive immigration reform debate goes, look, border security is separate from that. You need border security in place, operational control of the border before you even attempt to revisit immigration reform. That's a false narrative that Democrats have been pushing for way too long since the start of this administration. As a matter of fact, I would argue that because they're allowing what we're seeing down at the border with this record level crisis, they have actually pushed a conversation on immigration reform back decades until they get this under control. So have have the goalposts almost shifted? And if they have, would Republicans, I mean, if if Republicans want to tackle this, should, should they make any concessions? Should they say, look, at this point, yeah, well, let's talk about some sort of, um, I don't know, uh, maybe not citizenship, because that's that's, you know, that's the word amnesty that Republicans can't get on board with. Mm-hmm. Could Republicans get on board with something? Should they concede to anything if this is such a crisis and it's such a humanitarian crisis and we're seeing pictures of a two month old abandoned at the border? Then should both sides sort of abandon something here to, to get to some agreement? I think if the goal of the Biden administration was to cause this crisis in an attempt to speed up and force the conversation on immigration reform, that was the wrong strategy. And it has failed. It will never work. You need control of the border. As far as the position that the Republicans are in, yes, they have the upper hand because you see the Democrats are imploding on themselves. We see this with state and local officials turning on one another. I mean, you've got Representative Nadler from New York who's adamant 
that the mayor and the governor are completely wrong in the positions that they're taking right now, that this crisis is ruining New York. So you have Mm -hmm. Democrats turning on one another. Should the Republicans, if I were advising them, uh, take advantage of this? Absolutely, they should. Now, look, there are no brainers that are just going to kill the conversation like amnesty, especially in light of the fact that we have probably in reality over 10 million people that have entered the country illegally under this administration. Amnesty has always been out of the question and is certainly out of the question right now. So I don't think Republicans need to cave on too many issues with respect to this. They've got the public behind them in terms of the security and safety concerns with what's going on at the border. Uh, We know that immigration reform is needed, but the border security needs to happen first before that conversation happens. And I think they have the upper hand in leading that conversation on immigration reform and putting forth some pretty good recommendations on how that can happen and keeping the conversation realistic and let it be Democrats this time that choose whether or not they're going to cooperate effectively in this conversation or walk away. That also tells another story. Not very good for Democrats. I want to get to the politics at at, at the end here, but one more before we get there. The House held a, a hearing this past week regarding housing migrants at national parks and apparently there's some agreement to lease Floyd Bennett Field, um, which is part of the Gateway National Recreation Area in Brooklyn. The idea there is to a, a, a tent city housing up to 7,500 adult men. I mean, at this point, we've seen pictures of people like packed into the Roosevelt Hotel lobby like sardines trying to trying to nap or sleep, like sitting upright in chairs. Maybe a tent city at a national park is the next best thing. I don't even know at this point. I mean, how, what do you do with all of these people, especially if they're all going to, you know, one location or two locations like Chicago and New York and maybe, maybe a handful of others? Yeah, look, this crisis is going to impact every city across the country. We're seeing it right now uh, take effect in the sanctuary cities, which we knew was going to be the initial migration path uh, of the illegals coming into the country because of the safety and security that those cities provide to those in the country illegally. So we knew this was going to play out exactly as it is. But what we're seeing is we're seeing this impact legal citizens that are paying taxes and they are being not only inconvenienced, but their safety and security is being jeopardized, whether it's these massive housing temporary tents that are being placed in national parks or in high school gymnasiums or in local churches, whatever it is, this is not good for the safety and security of these communities. And why is that, Jessica? Because none of these people have been thoroughly vetted. It is impossible Mm. to vet all of these people. First of all, we don't share information with many of these countries, especially adversaries. And as far as talking about locations like the Northern Triangle and other locations, they just don't have reliable systems in place the way we do in the U.S. to track somebody's criminal history or terrorist history. So that's why it's extremely concerning. I testified before the House Judiciary Committee on this just a couple of weeks ago, where we were talking about terrorist entry through the southwest border. And it's a huge concern. Look at the number of those on the terrorist watch list 
that we're encountering on the border. The, the number is approaching 200, and that doesn't even include the almost 2 million gotaways, and of course, the ones that we have no idea that have entered the country, which is likely another 2 million. So how many terrorists and criminals are getting into the country? Uh, it's so fascinating that you say that. Bill Malusian, our Fox News correspondent, um, was on a DHS call, and um, this was, gosh, a couple, maybe a week or so ago. And one of the notes was that since May 12th, since Title 42 ended, DHS said they'd removed 253,000 migrants um, to 152 countries. So just just in four months, 253,000 yes. migrants to 152 countries. I think there That's are 190 right. countries in the world. I mean, That's right. what does that tell you that we have we, 152 countries? Yeah, we're up now. I think the number's higher now. I think it's 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 trending closer to 165 different countries. Well, what it tells me is that the word has been out for a long time globally, that there's no better time to attempt to sneak into the United States than now. And that's what we're seeing. Look at the look at the increase, Jessica, in Chinese nationals that are showing up at our border. These numbers are up almost 900 percent in encounters. And they're being let into the country. We know the Chinese are a huge threat to the United States. We know that they're an adversary. Forget all this competition stuff. They are an adversary of the United States. We know that they will sneak people in here uh, to do all sorts of things. All right. Well, last one for you, because this did come up at the debate um, uh, this past week. We heard a lot about the border. We've heard from especially Governor DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy about what you know, what they would do, what their plan is, um, sending military troops or, you know, sealing it with more than just a wall. Nikki Haley, though, said something that Congressman Crenshaw has talked about from Texas, and that is, you know, e- even if you don't designate the cartels as terrorist organizations, or, or maybe you have to in order to do this, sending in special ops teams to, I guess, kind of the way, I, I don't know what that means. Is that a SEAL Team 6 going in um, t- type thing to go hunt down these cartels that are funneling fentanyl here? Like what, when you hear yeah. some of the Republican ideas at, at the debate or, you know, or just out and about uh, as they speak on the campaign trail, does anything strike you that, that might work if, if we're going to, if we're going to ramp this up? I agree with the fact that we don't necessarily need to change the designation of the cartels from transnational criminal organizations to terrorist organizations. However, let's face the facts. Under this administration, the cartels have never been as powerful as they are now, both financially and mm-hmm. operationally. And, and the fact is, they are operating exactly like terrorist organizations right now. Okay, the government of Mexico is ineffective. Um, So the cartels, even though they're not a true insurgency, they are having the same effects as an insurgency and a terrorist organization. So we don't need to change the designation to include special ops teams like that. We can have those teams working alongside law enforcement uh, in the United States and intelligence agencies. But yes, we need to change the methodology and become more aggressive in how we're going after the cartels. And that that requires diplomacy, something that's been missing from this administration, yeah. especially with Mexico. We need to force Mexico's hands. Um, we have diplomatic sticks that we can use to force them to cooperate with us. 
And in the event that they don't, last time I checked, we are suffering close to 100,000 deaths a year because of fentanyl alone. So if we need to take unilateral action, which is not the preference of choice, but if we need to, we need to be prepared to do that. And Mexico should know that that is an acceptable option for us if push comes to shove. But we need to be more aggressive with the cartels and, and we and we need to be more aggressive with China as well, where the main ingredients of fentanyl, the synthetics are coming from. Wow. Saying that the cartels have never been more powerful and yet uh, El Chapo and his son are in the United States. That's a heck of a statement. Yeah. Well, look, uh, not only are they more powerful than they've ever been in where they're operating internationally, including in Mexico, but they're also many of them are now in the United States. The cartels are operating in many of our major cities, along with many of the Mexican gangs like MS-13 and others. So we've got a big problem, not only internationally with what's coming across our border, but what's already here in the country. We really have been uh, had here by this administration. This has been the biggest Trojan horse operation uh, in history coming into our country. So not only are we gonna have to fight this battle internationally, but now we're also gonna have to, because of this administration, fight it on the streets of our country in our major cities. Professor Charles Marino, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jessica. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Over half of Senate Democrats have called on Senator Bob Menendez to resign. One of the loudest voices is Senator John Fetterman. Right now it's arrogance. Now this is how many how many trips to the dance he's had on, on this kind of thing, you know? He's got to go. He's got to go. But the New Jersey senator has so far refused to do so. I will continue to cast votes on behalf of the people of New Jersey as I have for 18 years. The senator's indictment alleges he used his power and influence to benefit three New Jersey businessmen and the government of Egypt. It's not his first run-in with the law, but many believe the evidence against the senator is stronger this time around, despite Menendez saying he'll be exonerated. Well, I think what stands out to most people is the brazenness of the alleged conduct. The gold bar, the calls to officials to protect monopolies. Saul Weisenberg is a Fox News contributor and was deputy independent counsel in the investigation that led to the impeachment trial of President Bill Clinton in 1999. The the openness of what the senator was doing, but to a white collar criminal defense bar, we look at it and we say, where's the where's the official act? And for example, why didn't you charge him with failure to with, you know, intentionally falsely filing his, filling out his Senate disclosure forms. So that's the kind of thing we look at. Okay, it's very nice. Uh, it looks very nice. It looks very damning if they can prove it. But uh, let's let's wait and see what they actually have. 
Now, is this going to be a, a hard defense for him? You know, we, we've seen a number of, of, of lawmakers already come out and call on him to resign, but, you know, they, they do say that he has the right, uh, the presumption of innocence until he's proven guilty. But is his defense a, a hard road ahead here or does, does he have a chance? Well, I would I would say two things. Anytime you're charged in a federal white collar case, you're going to have a hard road. The federal criminal justice system is much more uh, rigged, if you will, or heavily weighted, if you will, in favor of the prosecution than than typical than you find in the state system. So any federal defendant has a hard road, particularly with allegations like this in a 35-page indictment. Does he have a chance? He absolutely has a chance. He has a good lawyer and a very good lawyer. Uh, and he's he's gotten a hung jury before. So, sure, he absolutely has a chance. And, and this was Abby Lowell, who was, I believe, his, his lawyer the last time he was indicted. Um, and, right. and I think that the, and people who might not follow politics closely, I think, are starting to learn this person's name a lot more. But, you know, he's been around the block for a number of years. I, you know, he's defended a uh, Jared Kushner and some other members of the Trump family in the past. He's currently uh, representing Hunter Biden. Um, and now, of course, he's once again representing Senator Menendez. And, you know, what, what kind of do you make of, of, of his history and how this could play here? Well, he's a very good white collar criminal defense lawyer. There are a lot of very good white collar criminal defense lawyers in, in the Washington bar. And he's one of them. What's kind of interesting is that Abby is very careful about how he picks his cases. He doesn't like to go to trial with a loser case. And it looks, it looks here like the evidence and the case against the senator is considerably stronger than the earlier case. So it'll be very interesting to watch things as they develop. But, you know, like I said, he's very good, but the federal system is rigged in favor of the government. Now, now, what's different about this this indictment as opposed to the last one? Uh, there's a there's a lot. There's more here. Uh, there's more in terms of the favors that were provided. It's sexier, you know, gold bars and envelopes full of cash found in your suit and coat pockets and in your closet. I mean, that's just something that is looks a lot worse and is more blatant and will have to be explained. And there are, more, there are more people involved in terms of the people who are allegedly offering the bribes. Uh, so that's the, this, there's more the government has to work with here, but they've still got to show, and it's important that your listeners know this, you have to show that there's an official act, okay? Uh, that's how the prosecution of the former governor of uh, Virginia, McDonald, Bob McDonald, that case got reversed by the Supreme Court. Uh, I believe it was unanimous reversal. And it was reversed because the government's theory of what an official act was was too, too broad. Uh, arranging a meeting with your supporter, but between your supporter and a government official wasn't enough. You know, politicians do that all the time, according to the Supreme Court. Here you've got stuff that looks at, at first blush, at least, looks mu much more serious. You have Menendez personally, not just arranging a meeting, but personally trying to intervene with an agriculture um, department official. You've got him personally trying to affect and intervene in a state prosecution. But again, uh, is that an official act uh, of a U.S. senator? 
when he calls and tries to influence the state prosecution. So that's, you know, that's going to be, that's a key to the attempt to the bribery charge. Um, but then there's a charge, a separate charge for uh, honest services fraud. And then there's a third charge, um, essentially a Hobbs Act charge for extortion under color of, of right. Uh, again, it's all the same conduct, right? It's all an attempt to use your influence as a senator to benefit people who are paying you money. So it looks terrible, but I imagine the defense is going to be partly a very technical defense and partly uh, a defense of, wait a minute, you're picking on him. You didn't get a, you didn't get a conviction the first time. Now the Department of Justice is trying to do it again. And, and why is he doing that? Is it because he's a political embarrassment to the administration? So those are some of the kinds of things you're going to be looking at. Now, what what kind of uh, play does the do, does the the Egypt angle play in here? That that some of this was to benefit the the government of Egypt, and the fact that this is also somebody who had a position on the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee as the chairman there, and you know that might be one of the committees outside of intelligence where you are probably in, exposed to a lot of classified information. Is that going to play here, and is that a concern? Absolutely, on on both counts. Uh, that's where I think he's most vulnerable. Whenever you start talking about the foreign government, um, and the person is at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, that's what I think he's going to have the most most difficulty with. And what kind of timeline are we looking at for Menendez? Oh, that you know, I forget what is he up for re-election uh, uh, ne- next year. Next year. Well, you know, you can go one of two ways. You can go. The, uh, you know, the Ted Stevens approach is to, is to demand a trial right away. Ted Stevens did that because he was coming up with a Senate race. This is the former Senator from Alaska. And, uh, you know, in Ted Stevens case, he was indicted and he demanded, um, that the government follow the speedy trial clock. He demanded a, a trial as soon as possible. Uh, he got one and even though he was convicted, by forcing the government to take him to trial so quickly, they committed some mistakes. They committed serious ethical violations. And so though he was convicted, Judge Emmett Sullivan uh, ended up tossing the case and DOJ said, we're not going to prosecute him yet. So that's one way to do it. The other way, uh, if, if Abby Law wants a continuance, and he certainly has other things that he's doing related to Hunter Biden, but if he wants a continuance, if the senator wants a continuance, he's certainly going to get one. Uh, you know, it's a white collar case. There's a lot of evidence, a lot of stuff to go through. And, uh, under the speedy trial act, if this is designated as a complex case, it can be, it can be two or three years. I would imagine the Senator would want to clear his name up before then though. All right. And if we could move on to, uh, to, to the, uh, impeachment proceedings that we saw this week, or I should say impeachment inquiry hearing, we saw our first one. Did did this change anything, or was there anything that stood out to you about the the first impeachment hearing we saw? Well, I th- I don't think there is any question that there is enough to launch an impeachment inquiry uh, based on what we know. These committees, these three committees, have done really yeoman's work in subpoenaing documents and showing the money flow into various Biden family members and uh, the whole business with the. LLCs, the multiple LLCs that were created to receive money. Now, 
Is there enough to actually vote for articles of impeachment? Absolutely not, in my view. So perfectly proper to do it. So the question is, why call it an impeachment inquiry? These, these committees were doing good work, uh, really getting things done. Why are you calling it an impeachment inquiry? The reason given is that it gives you more power. When you go into court, if somebody claims, for example, if the Biden administration claims we've got, the, uh, we don't have to turn this document over. Uh, if the Biden family, if Joe Biden says, I don't have to give you my bank records for various reasons or, or invokes executive privilege, the House is at the height of its powers when it's sitting as an impeachment inquiry, supposedly. And so it's, it's a vehicle to help you in court get records if somebody contests you, contests uh, your subpoenas. The problem with that is that, as many people have pointed out, there hasn't been a vote even authorizing the inquiry because Speaker McCarthy doesn't have the votes. So um, that's that's really the problem. And I think that they um, the committee hopes that by publicizing and finding more evidence that they can ultimately get the votes to at least get an authorization by the full House to conduct this inquiry. So I think a lot of it is... Um, theatrics, uh, political theater to be able to call it an impeachment inquiry. That's it, plain and simple. Yeah, right. And then when we talk about, you know, and I don't know if the word theatrics would be the way to describe, but there certainly were some just testy moments in that in that hearing room. And, and you saw that from both Democrats and Republicans. Um, and, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, when, when you were uh, involved in the in the uh, Clinton impeachment hearings, you know, was there anything different about that? Was there this testiness that was going on between both political sides or was was it more cordial back then? Oh, no, it's all it's always this way. I mean, the biggest difference between is that we sent over. First of all, I was not involved. I was I worked for Ken Starr, so um, I wasn't involved in the congressional portion of it. Uh, obviously, uh, I kept abreast of it and I was with Judge Starr when they had him come over to testify. And um, but, oh, my God, it was it was very testy. It was it was at a, at a much more nuclear level. In fact, Abby Lowell was there and um, representing the House Democrats. So um, it's always testy. Uh, you're probably too young to remember this. But in the House, when they, the House launched impeachment proceedings against uh, President Nixon back in the Watergate era in the 70s, uh, at the beginning uh, the majority of the Republicans on the committee were clearly uh, very testy and very and very opposed to the idea of impeaching President Nixon. And then all of a sudden, more evidence came out. The tape transcripts came out. The smoking gun tape came out and, and everything changed. So the, the testiness uh, that just struck me as is typical of Washington now and in the past. Um, I think the criticism by the Democrat was that well, you don't have any, you don't have any fact witnesses. And the response was, well, we didn't say we we're going to have fact witnesses. We, we, we brought these people here to basically uh, say it's, it's worth looking. These are serious things that need to be looked into. And, and as we're doing this interview, you know, uh, James Comer, the oversight committee chairman, who's been one of the big names involved with this has, has, has had some additional subpoenas, you know, what what can we expect him to subpoena for? What can we expect him to do moving forward to try to prove the case that there was a potential bribery scheme that took place here? Well, he he's already, you know, they've already found a lot of stuff. They have found a lot of smoke. And by the way, 
you know, to say there's no evidence, no evidence at all linking Joe Biden to any improper payments, I, I beg to differ with that. Now, is there enough to vote for impeachment? Would there be enough to indict him? No. To begin with, some of the stuff is beyond the statute of limitations. But, you, you, you know, you have a person, you have a email where somebody talks about either 5 or 10% going to the big guy, and you've got Tony Bobolinsky saying the big guy was President Biden. That's something that could ultimately be admitted, that email, as a co-conspirator statement. Uh, you, you've, you've got individuals who have told the FBI uh, that, that uh, the Bidens received a bribe. So um, to say that there's no evidence whatsoever linking Joe Biden to any improper payments would, would, be, would be incorrect. But in a direct answer to your question, they're going to get more documents uh, from more financial institutions. And I think they're going to move to get the personal record. They're going to move against the Biden family itself to get more records. And that's where you're going to have, and against the executive branch. The president's already invoked uh, executive privilege in the past in some of this litigation uh, or in response to some of these requests. And I think you're going to see some court battles over that. But again, you know, None of this, right now, Speaker McCarthy can't even get the votes to launch uh, of the full House to launch, to authorize this inquiry. So that's that's where we are politically, and that's not going to change. And even if somehow some bombshell information came out and they had enough vote votes to vote for an article of impeachment, you need two thirds in the Senate, and the Republicans don't even have a majority. So nothing nothing substantive is going to come from this other than perhaps some 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 more evidence. So, so the pressure is really on to, 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 to have the strongest evidence possible here. Would you say that? Well, people are going to always say, what what have you gotten extra? To me, uh, they've already been able to show $24 million. I don't think anybody has denied this. $24 million going over a multi-year period, either going to Biden family members or their associates. I think $15 million went to Biden family members, nine to business associates. So uh, what did you do for that money? Okay. Well, and uh, to, to everybody who got it, you know, what did you do for that money? And why have you created all of these LLCs in which to receive this money? Um, those are the kind of questions that, um, I mean, that to me, that's significant. Those are significant findings. And the president and his family members should be asked about that all the time. All right. Saul Weisenberg, Fox News contributor, always with great analysis. Thank you for joining us as always. That'll do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, the Supreme Court gets back in action, including a case that could have an impact on how drug crimes are sentenced. Plus, we follow the latest on the 2024 presidential race. I'm Ryan Schmelz. Thank you for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.